Welcome to What's Korean Cinema, episode 59 on Tell Me Something. Dressed up as Silence of the Lambs and Seven, through uh, grim findings of uh, body parts and constant uh, rain, uh, uh, Korean cinema of 1999 heads into the serial killer film with Tell Me Something. And my name is Kenny Bia, with me to discuss this uh, grisly piece of work is Angle Celluloids, Paul Quinn. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Or good morning, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. It really wears its um, influences on its sleeve. <laughs> like, there's like, like that Silence of the Lambs, that's seven. Because raining in 90s serial killer films was just that seven. And for, for better or worse, you, you know, you can be good. But uh, it uh, they, they, they weren't shy about uh, that uh, rainy thing. And I'm sure that can't comes from maybe Nowhere to Hide as well, uh, which wasn't a serial killer film, but uh, it sure is raining a lot in Tell Me Something. But uh, hey, let's uh, get on with it. Uh, we are going to discuss this movie as in-depth as we can, but first of all, for for all the back catalogue of uh, what's the What's Korean Cinema podcast, we are available. Uh, that is available on podcastonfi.com, and the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. And uh, we're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those things are available on our site as well. And if you want to hear me and Paul Quinn uh, chat about uh, older Korean films on Blu-ray disc, you can in the case of the Mondo Macabro release of uh, Kim Ki-young's Woman Chasing the Butterfly of Death. Quite a, I wanted to say macabre, but it's not really. It's uh, really funny and it's about... Uh, you know, it has talking skeletons and butterflies and uh, other musings uh, that are both deep, but the talking skeleton is very funny. And there we are for two hours trying to make sense of that uh, film on the audio commentary, which was uh, a delightful thing to do. So that is out there on a region all Blu-ray. I'm going to hand over to you for a plug of uh, your website. Uh, hi, guys. You probably mostly have heard of me before you've been here before um i'm paul i run hangelcelluloid.com for all your korean film needs be it reviews interviews or transcriptions of, of talks that i've given here there and everywhere pop over to hangelcelluloid.com and you can find my twitter feed and my facebook feed if you're into the social media thing but you know go and have a look and you know hopefully we'll we'll push you over there with what we've got to say about a few things related to tell me something tonight have you finished um, Kingdom yet, or you never did uh, pursue that in full, the Korean uh, zombie TV series? I I saw the big series, um, and at that point, I'd actually got Netflix through a phone upgrade, and it was for a year, and it ran out, and I never got round to rejigging it again, because apart from Kingdom and a couple of Korean films, you know, I'd ended up not using it very much, so I keep meaning to do it again. There are things that are starting to pop up that I'm thinking, actually, I'd like to see that, but I, I never followed it through, and I, I really should have just to see Ashen of the North because of Junji, and so I'll catch it at some point, hopefully, but, you know, I'm a, a series one guy is as far as I got through, and I did I did love it. I did love it. It's a very good follow-up, but I had trouble sort of keeping track of characters during season one, and then they really did a good job during season two defining characters and as you said Ashton of the North is the special prequel movie uh, they bill it as a special episode but it's 80 85 minutes uh, that's uh, they, they teased her appearance at the end of season two and there she has the prequel movie and I thought it was very, very well produced in the vein of the series um, not afraid to be gruesome 
and uh, it was really really nice. I mean, she isn't in it until like the forty minute mark because it's her as a girl first, but still she makes the most of her appearance, and I'm sure that might have been produced during uh, some kind of COVID restriction restrictions. I would, too, I would so. imagine, yeah. Uh, but uh, who knows if uh, Kingdom is going to even have a season three? No one has uh, told us. They've hinted that they might have um, another special episode movie in the works for one of the male characters, but um, nothing as of yet. It never really broke through as much as Squid Game did. So Squid Game was almost like even if they did finish Squid Game, uh, Squid Game, I haven't seen it. There's going to be powers that be that's going to poke the creator. Do it. Season two. Write something. And I mean, I, I think that it's completely off topic from our, our podcast, but it's worth saying that I think that's a real shame because Kingdom is really worthy as a series. I really do think it is. Squid Game left me feeling a little bit cold. And I can hear the, the, the gasps from the audience right now it's saying, okay what, to what? Dis- It's okay to dislike something, Paul. You're not slamming everyone else's love for it. Oh, I, I just couldn't get... Hunger Games and Battle Royale out of my head. It just... That's why I never pursued it. I was I don't know why I felt fati- fatigued of that setup, but I'm sure Squid Game Squid Game is good. I just I, I was I don't feel like it. I really don't. And, and it's ironic because Kingdom is a zombie series. But totally. How, how did you feel like watching that? Well, I did, and I was and I liked it, and I thought it had clever touches for a genre. And I'm sure Squid Game will be the same but I just don't have the motivation to do it right now. You know, there's a, there's a, I guess you could call it a, a negative trait with me that the more something's, I, I like indie stuff. I like stuff that nobody's talking about. I like to discover stuff that I can trumpet, I guess, you know, for my own ego, I guess. But as soon as, you know, the zeitgeist starts waxing lyrical about this, that and the other, it sort of turns me away. It's I never saw a single episode of Breaking Bad. You know, I watched the first couple of episodes of Lost and everybody started talking about it. And then and everybody like, got lost. So I don't think yeah, you're going to have you're going to be able to untangle Lost anyway. But, you know, I, I, I hear you. I tend to wait till I find my motivation, which is not at the same time that the rest of the world did. The, the, exactly. the, the advantage exactly. to Squid Game is that the Netflix uh, appearance and presence I don't think is going to be limited necessarily. So if you come come to it in a year or two or three, then I'm sure it's going to be there. I'm sure it will be. I, 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 I'm not actually so sure that my motivation will be. You know, I saw a couple of episodes and I say I just sort of went, meh. Plus, it's not a Korean film. Uh, you know, let's let's be blatant about this. Korean film, F L F I L M. He said, not being able to spell. <laughs> Korean Korean flim. That's my thing. Uh, Korean flim. That's what you want to go for. It, you know, that's that's my forte, and it's going to have to be a remarkable TV series for me to really want to hook into it. And you know what, Kingdom had the hook of it being a period piece. But it also really quickly establishes itself that this is well produced. They're not afraid to be gruesome. And uh, yeah, it looks killer. And it was really clever. They, they, they use uh, almost vampire lore in terms of uh, when the zombie attacks happen uh, and uh, wh- when they don't, which was really cool. And, uh, uh, and, and Bader now, of course, being in it. Indeed, indeed. But anyway, let's uh, uh, 
go into the Tell Me Something episode and a, a little rundown of what's to come here. First, we'll touch a little on the film's reception, both both overseas and domestically. It made a splash or appearance, at least, uh, internationally. And, and kind of what the film landscape uh, at the top of the box office looked like in 1999. You might know some of the movies, but we're going to repeat it anyway. We'll then break down uh, the films of director uh, Chang Yoon Hyun because there aren't that many, so we can. Uh, we'll highlight the biography again. We did that during the Shiri episode, but that's been a while. We'll, so we'll highlight the biography of leading man, Hansu Q, and uh, then we will review the tricky film that is Tell Me Something and Time Code. So I'll uh, throw in the show post. So Tell Me Something from 1999, a plot from the Hong Kong dig- digital review of the film. Black trash bags full of blood and severed body parts are turning up in various locations throughout Seoul. Forensic uh, investigation reveals that sections from various bodies have been mixed together and that amputations were performed in a very precise and professional manner. The killer also cut off all fingerprints, making identification of the victims difficult. Under investigation by the Internal Affairs Department for allegedly accepting payoffs in order to pay his uh, mother's mounting medical expenses. Expenses. A gifted detective Cho, played by Hansu Kyu from Shiri, is offered a chance at redemption if he can crack this killer case, serial killer case. Assembling a team of officers, Cho is able to learn the identity of one cadaver via the crowns in the man's teeth, and eventually ascertains that there is a grisly pattern to the way in which these gruesome bundles have been assembled. The identified man cited museum worker Che Su Yon, played by Shimuna from Christmas in August, and art museum by Visu that we discussed prior episode. She is his main contact in uh, his dental records, and she is able to identify all of the victims since they were her ex-lovers. Detective Cho begins to watch over the woman while also investigating the most likely suspect, the character of Kim Ki Yeon, played by Yu Sang Jun, a strange medical student obsessed with Su Yeon. So that's your little setup for it. The Korean title, Paul, reads as phonetic English, which I don't think I've spotted that often. There's obviously always a Korean title, but I can't obviously make heads or tails about it, what it all means, because it's a Korean title. But when you put up uh, Tell Me Something on um, Internet Movie Database, it appears as sort of a phonetic version of Tell Me Something. So is that common? And why do you think that is in this case? Hugely, hugely uncommon. It's a a rare occurrence. Uh, What you've got here is you just got to look back at when this was released. You know, this was right at the start of the new Korean cinema wave. And prior to that, cinema audiences just weren't there. I, you know, I've, I've said it in numerous podcasts, and I hate to repeat myself, but the vast majority of cinema audiences were, were middle-aged women when the new Korean cinema wave started, and they were trying to draw younger audiences in. Those younger audiences had been infatuated with TV, which was showing US films, be they horror or whatever else. So the whole idea of cinema for the young viewer was Western, US imported, you know, Hong Kong, etc, etc. This story was originally conceptualized by a guy called uh, Ku Bon Han, um, who was a production designer. He, he wrote stories, he was in involved in you know getting the films made um, and he handed it over to I think five or six screenwriters to actually create the screenplay yeah there's five of them uh, credited including the director but uh, Ko yeah. Bo- Boon Han is uh, listed as co-producer on the film 
Yeah. When he came up with the story, I assume, and I, I assume with strong belief that I'm right, that he was thinking we've got to link this film, which is very 90s US thriller-ish to it. He, he wanted to link to those and those Western films, those international films that were attracting the audiences. And the best way he saw to do that was to actually use the English words, but write them in Korean lettering. Tell me something, as it would be pronounced with Korean hangul, doesn't actually mean anything in Korean. It is just because the hangul letters sound like the English letters or the English words. If you were in conversation to say, tell me something, it would be a completely different word, a completely different phrase in Korea itself. So I assume he was just saying to the younger audiences, hey, look, my my title's in Korean because this is a Korean film, but it's actually phonetically the English because this is going to attract you as much as a Western movie that you love would. And in doing that, you know, he got people in and played a part in bringing audiences back to Korean film. And and that kind of ties into, I suppose, in uh, the, the first section I wanted to cover here, that the, the wiki of uh, Tell Me Something says that the film gained attraction overseas and was, was an early one in the new Korean cinema wave to do so abroad. It, it didn't play at the New York Korean Film Festival that year. It played in 2001, but... Uh, it, in general, did, did you find any, find out anything about its attraction or impact overseas before we get to the local impact? Yeah, totally, totally. It had big impact overseas, and that all comes down to a one-word titled film called Shiri. Um, Shiri was really the first Korean film to gain traction internationally, and it was only a couple of months after Shiri's cinema run that tell me something had its own separate cinema run this is prior to the new york festival thing it had its own run simply because it was seen as very akin to seven to black re and to etc etc and it, with the success of shiri with people never having seen korean cinema before they thought well we'll show this it links to us stuff in its themes and whatever and it's Korean and everybody seems to love Shiri, so maybe they'll love this. So they gave it a separate cinema run and it did phenomenally well. Um, so you can thank Shiri for its initial success abroad. And then, as I say, as you say, it was invited to the New York Festival and uh, gained traction there too. Yeah, and, and also introduced, um, <laughs> I guess, Korean extreme violence uh, to to audiences and that wouldn't be the last time uh, because Shiri might have been might have been violent, but um, then movies came out that uh, started to elevate that and be famous for that, be, be famous for being good films. But then you had the Vengeance, Vengeance trilogy trickling out over the years, and uh, had, it had uh, impactful imagery, just like this uh, has uh, graf- graphic, impactful imagery. If looking at uh, domestically, I'll tell me something. There, the blockbuster year of 1999, and tell me something was the third most attended film in uh, South Korea, trailing only. Attack the gas station and at 960,000. And Shiri by a bit that had, oh, nothing, just nearly 2.5 <laughs> million admissions. Yeah. There's a little gap there between the little Attack the gas station film and, uh, and Shiri. Uh, so, so, yeah, actor Hansu Q performing at least um, in at least two of the top 
10 films that year if not uh, if not more tell me something and uh, and Shiri. Uh, looking at that list, it also included Nowhere to Hide, that, that's our top 10 list, I suppose. Um, Happy End, the re- the remake or new version of the monster movie Yongari, Ghost in Love, Phantom the Submur- Submarine, The Ring Virus, uh, and City of the Rising Sun. And uh, in general, are some of these, in your opinion, uh, unfairly forgotten 1999 entries that uh, deserve a mention for what they brought commercially or and um, critically and all of that uh, I mean no one really speaks of uh, Young Gary I'm, I'm sure you don't rate high it's a fun film but it's not a very it's not even a complete film it's kind of unfinished but it's a fun film yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but the other other ones are they sort of unfairly forgotten Phantom the Submarine City of the Rising Sun etc they've, they've got they're really unfairly forgotten you know and, and for for Korean film fans they they haven't been particularly forgotten but for the normal film fan that isn't as into Korean cinema. They certainly have been. They've all got something that's vital, that's really important going for them. If, nowhere to hide. We've talked about endlessly. Anson Key, hugely hard-boiled thriller. One of the first Tartan Asia extreme releases internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, no one internationally knew anything about Korean cinema when Nowhere to Hide was released to the extent that critics described it as with the tagline, is Hollywood ready for the next John Woo? Yeah, that's not even that's not even remotely correct. It's nowhere near correct, but they were clutching at straws. They didn't know what Korean cinema was. They didn't know what they've got and and nowhere to hide, you know, played a big part in teaching them what they had in hindsight. So it it's hugely hugely important. Um Happy End by Jung Ji-woo famously stars Choi Min-sik and Jun Do-yeon, a story of a couple whose life isn't exactly as it should be. Phenomenally important film, not least in the terms of its controversial nature, and that's all I'm going to say. Massively well thought of at the time, but as you say, kind of half forgotten, and it really shouldn't be. Astonishing film with Jun Do Yun especially, so early in her career. If we look at Phantom the Submarine, which sounds like a really terrible title for a movie, but it's got so much going for it because in its story of one character trying to stop another character from launching a nuclear attack on Japan, we've got Jung Woo Sung, who has been in virtually anything you can mention from Beast Clone at Straws that I mentioned in the last podcast to A Moment to Remember. And it's got Sol Kyung Yu from Hyundai, etc., etc., etc. Most importantly of, of all, Phantom the Submarine was in part, screenplay was in part written by Bong Joon-ho early in his career. So if you're interested in seeing where Bong Joon-ho started, you need to check it out. It needs to not be forgotten. By the way, I read today, whether this is true or not, there's a little tangent about Bong Joon-ho. Uh, I have not seen Snowpiercer. I'm going to uh, eventually, but, but I simply have it. But I read a little uh, story snippet when they were contemplating editing the film. The, the Weinstein Company was uh, contemplating editing the film, and they, they were uh, wanting to uh, cut the scene about a fisherman in the film. And apparently, I don't know if this is true, but I hope it's true. Apparently, Bong Joon Ho said that uh, no, you're not. Uh, that, that's a very personal scene uh, because my my father was a fisherman. And then the Weinsteins, the Harvey Weinstein, said, well, f- family's important, so it stays in. And then afterwards, Bong Joon-ho said to a journalist <laughs> or something like, uh, nah, my father wasn't a fucking fisherman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's a total I, lie. I, I've, I've heard that story too. And I, again, it seems on brand for Bong Joon-ho. 
it's so off the wall and tongue-in-cheek it, it sounds like his sense of humor so i i'm gonna guess that it did actually it is the case and you know consider how much i hate harvey weinstein as you should Con- convicted rapist played like played like a fiddle uh by bong joon ho even before i knew the sorts of things he was getting up to i'm really glad he was as you say played by a f- like a fiddle by bong joon ho that's very cool um in terms of those films you mentioned the the other one that has really been forgotten saying the title will tell you exactly why ghost in love nobody's going to go near it because it sounds like just a throwaway romantic piece of you know drivel it's not and the sad thing is it was the very first film of actress jang jin young um who you'll probably remember from the file king as the girl who trains uh song kang ho was that the girl who unfortunately died young yes she she very poignant little story um she did you know loads of films blue swallow sorum she was in which i always keep mentioning um that everybody thinks it's horror it's not a psychological thriller and it's it'll leave you in a crumpled heap on the floor but she also did a film called scent of love which was a story about a young girl who was dying from stomach cancer and just a few years later that story became Jan Jin Young's story and that's that's how she died so hugely talented actress sadly missed but if you want to see where her career set off you need you need to check out this silly little romantic comedy romantic film ghost in love that nobody remembers but to me is as important in her career as it is to Korean cinema And let's move forward a little bit here. Uh, Darcy Packett wrote that uh, Tell Me Something actually had traction before release in uh, Korea, that it was hugely anticipated based on director Chang Hoon uh, Hyun's previous film, The Contact, in 1997. So was there box office buzz uh, coming in from The Contact that then spilled over to Tell Me Something to the point where people were anticipating the director's new film? Or was it uh, the casting of Tell Me Something that uh, added fuel to that So positive fire because i also read that tell me something had a more pronounced marketing campaign than perhaps korean films had at the time yeah i mean all of the above the contact i i did a talk last year for the british korean society on the emergence of the korean cinema wave and the three films that i mentioned first and foremost at the very beginning were the contact lee chang dong's green fish and number three which is a a gangster comedy, they almost solely alone set off the new Korean cinema wave. People started seeing these films and seeing that Korean cinema had changed from what it had been, even though they didn't realize that it was going to become called the new Korean cinema wave. The Contact, again, starring Jin Do-yeon, who also did A Promise that topped the box office on its year of release, drew people in. Its story drew people in, and our director got really good critical acclaim. So people were, one, looking for his next film. And on top of that, you've got to remember, this was at the time of star power. And we've got a film, Tell Me Something, that stars Shim Yuna, who was a huge television star, even if her cinema career was a lot smaller at that point. And Hansa Q, who was possibly the, the biggest male star Korea had ever seen. You know, they were at the time, the two of them were deemed to be the Tom Cruise and uh, Julia Roberts of 
Korean cinema, bankable stars, you know, and they always said Julia Roberts because it was before Nicole Kidman sort of became hugely, hugely famous after she left him. Um, but, you know, they were hugely bankable stars that you couldn't go wrong with. They they were on TV throughout their career. They were in the cinema throughout their career. People loved them. And the thought of a film like The Contact that had really felt like new cinema meant they were going to check out this director's next film with these two huge bankable stars. It wrote its own ticket, if you like. And as you say, it was one of the first Korean films to have a really pronounced marketing campaign. There were shows in Korea that had Hansa Q or Shim Yuna in it. And in commercial breaks, they would actually have the trailer for Tell Me Something playing. There were cinema posters built way before its release pointing to it. The trailer was shown in cinemas incessantly. So that helped as well. But it all comes down to star power and the, the thought that this could be new cinema. We obviously have talked about this anticipation, but let's touch upon director Chang Yoon Hyun a little bit more. Uh, uh, I've done a contact that you mentioned. He made his first two films in 1989 and 1990, uh, which was O, Country of Dreams and The Night Before the Strike. Yeah, and he has popped up every few years, uh, making the movie Some in 2004, uh, Wang Jin Yi in 2007, Gabi or Gaby, I don't know, in 2012, and finally Peaceful Island in 2015. So I guess uh, just general curiosity on my behalf, is there a unifying theme and style in his filmography, or is, for instance, the contact unique territory, and tell me something is unique uh, territory. So you, I'm curious about that, but you're welcome to sort of briefly go through the other films to paint the picture of what this career has been like. Essentially, Chan Yun-hun is one of those directors who does what he wants because he wants to do it. When you look at directors like Ryu Sung-won, you know, the action kid of Korea cinema, you, you kind of know what you're going to get. There's going to be breadth to it, but it's it's going to be a, a hard-boiled action thriller more likely than not. With Chang Yun-hun, that's not the case. If you look at some, for example, that you mentioned, it's it's a, a you know, a, it's a hard-boiled crime thriller that, that works really well. The Contact Romance, Wang Jinyi. Um, it's a period piece about Korea's most famous courtesan. And Gabi, another period piece about the attempt to assassinate the, the historical king of Joseon by using coffee that's been poisoned. So he's all over the place in terms of what he does, but he does it because he feels it's worth doing. That's That's his theme. He thinks this is a good story. This is worth telling. And if you look at Tell Me Something again, you know, that's his foray into the horror genre, which he never really stepped back into again. So, you know, he does what he wants to do because he feels it's worth doing. Has he therefore remained a commercially successful, viable director or that has varied from movie to movie? Very much so. I mean, you know, Wang Jinyi, uh, and Gabby especially uh, were really critically acclaimed and got, you know, they had big marketing behind them at the time. I, I specifically remember it. Gabby, which actually means coffee in Korean, by the way, um, was was talked about so much that you, you almost couldn't get away from it. So he's he's had the, the powers to be behind him and he has been very commercially successful. All of all of those films did pretty darn well for what they were in, in the box office. So he's done okay for himself. 
even though I have not seen a more than a handful, perhaps half a dozen films uh, from um, actor Hansu Q. I, I, I like actors that are solid and dependable, whatever you watch them in, you just know. He is one such. Uh, the big names, obviously, Song Kang-ho, Choi Min-sik, they're the same, really, and you have An Sun-ki, who I regard being the same as well, like that, that solid nature. Uh, Han Suk-kyu is interesting because it seems like he's, uh, he, he's always going to be around, he's always going to be acclaimed, but he, his star power is there, but he isn't the, the, the hot property that he was, and that's not a neg- negative necessarily, he's simply still a working actor and he's doing very well for himself, but uh, during this time he simply was hot, so uh, let's give you a little image of uh, Han Suk-kyu, what his cheery days were like and, and the likes, and uh, he has maintained the profile uh, since the 90s, and apparently is a proud movie nerd, he adores uh, Studio Ghibli Animation, reportedly, and uh, not the worst reputation to have about you, that you like uh, cartoons, so... No, well, indeed, indeed. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, maybe we should set the stage a little bit further, like, yeah, he certainly was a commercially viable leading man and idolized, but, but is he still, I mean, we talked about it during the Shiri discussion many years ago, but is he still a strong veteran presence that comes with huge respect from, you know, audience or within the industry in your eyes? I mean, he is still working, right? Oh, he is, yeah, yeah, and, and hugely so. You know, he's we're gonna we're gonna be talking about his successes and failures in a minute or two, anyway. But um, over the years, he's always been not only reliable but actually sought out. And even as his career has had highs and lows, um, he's dependable. He is a name that everybody knows and everybody equates as a, a great actor. If you look at, you know, what he's done in fairly recent years through you know, new Korean cinema and beyond, he's he's done everything from Joseon, you know, traditional uh, period pieces like Forbidden Quest and uh, The Royal Tailor. He did Ryosun One's The Berlin File, which is, you know, big action hit. He did White Knight with Son Ye Jin as, you know, a jaded ill cop who's trying to search down someone who's a serial killer, et cetera, et cetera. But he also does really small stuff like A Bloody Aria, which I, I didn't really rate that much, not because of him, but I find the storyline a little bit offensive in points. It's it's very controversial, but it's a very small film. So he's still getting his lead roles in both big and small films, um, and he's still working his ass off, um, both both in cinema and television. And uh, going back a little in his uh, career, he was a student at the theatre and film department of uh, Dongguk University, while at the same time singing in an amateur rock band, apparently. But um, he uh, went into acting mainly, scored an early voice acting contract with the Korean broadcasting system, uh, but was soon on to uh, uh, on-screen uh, roles in TV and film acting. And within TV, the small screen breakthrough came in the 1994 series The Moon of Soul where he played a gigolo who grew up in the slums, whose goal was to get rich no matter what, and uh, no matter what the costing consequences. So, like an anti-character, anti-hero, I suppose. In that series, he was paired off with Choi Min-sik, and uh, before they went on to share the screen uh, in the likes of Shiri, Choi Min-sik was the villain in uh, in Shiri. And it also features uh, actors and veterans uh, that series that w- would go on to movies such as The Quiet Family First, Save the Green Planet, and all of that. So... I mean, I'm sure you can't see it uh, in full subtitle or whatever, but do, do you know if the Moon of Soul was like quality TV or was it like daytime soap opera hysterics that just happened to have like classic actors in it making their breakthrough? 
No, it was it was seen as being quality TV as much as TV can be quality. I never got to see it, you know, getting your hands on Korean dramas back in those days. Um, few and far between, you could get the odd thing, but it, it wasn't a case of, oh, I want to see that, so therefore I'll go and get it, um, certainly internationally. But, you know, seen as quality TV, he was critically acclaimed for his role in it, um, and it, it, it furthered his career as well. It, it really did. And uh, movies that then uh, changed everything, I suppose, uh, for the cinema climate, but uh, also for him uh, being in it, uh, occurred here in the 90s with movies like Greenfish, Number 3, Christmas in August, and Shiri. In your eyes, what became evident as he became a film actor? Was he like a strong leading man responding to material? Or was he like a heartthrob? Or uh, was it like uh, branded, you think, as a this is a good actor in this variety of genre films, if you use uh, these films as an example? I mean, again, all of the above. He's so, his talent's so broad. He can be the hard heading lead. He can be the romantic lead he can be the second in line and and be the character actor um you mentioned number three green fish and christmas in august people keep talking about because you know of what they are if you look at how important they were you know number three started off really the gangster comedy genre that just blew through korea through the whole of the new korean cinema wave it was one of the first things to do that um directed by song nung um, as his debut um it stars hansuk yu who was one of the biggest actors at the time it's got choi min sik in it and it's got song kang ho in it as the three men um and if you look at back then their careers were far less far forward but if you look at the acting talent of korea now those are three of the biggest names ever all set in one little gangster comedy that stands as an absolute satire of the whole idea of gangsters it kicks itself in the butt it bites its own tongue it just it's superlative it and it's why everybody keeps mentioning it. it's why i brought it up in that talk above so many other things green fish by Yi chang dong phenomenal leading man role and it does have to be said that it shows his breadth of acting talent. There is a scene in a phone booth, a long, long monologue, and it, it had all been scripted. And before the filming took place, Hansuk Hugh went up to Lee Chai Dong and said, I don't like the way this is written. Let me just improvise it. And Lee Chai Dong trusted him enough and said, Go do whatever you want. And he did the entire six, seven minute monologue off the top of his head in one take. That's why Greenfish is thought of. It's mentioned all the time. And in terms of Christmas in August, when I started getting into Korean cinema, HMV was still going. And I find Christmas in August in there. I knew who Shim Yunaya was. I, I thought, I'll get this. And it, it blew me away. Um, it's filmed by Her Jin Ho about a terminally ill man falling in love with Shim Yunaya's character. I was so moved by it, I went back down to HMV the next day and bought all the copies they had and gave them out to everybody I know. It's like, you know, like it's all mine. <laughs> I thought were like, I'm going to buy buy them all because one day I'm going to make a, I'm going to make some money off this. <laughs> well, it's just like, here, here, have this, you need to watch this, you need to watch this. And to, to this day, 
my sister's version of Christmas in August is still sitting under the TV unwatched. I I know for a fact, but you know we'll get we'll get back to that later. The the chemistry the two characters have uh, is so strong in that film. Their chemistry is strong in most of their films. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my feelings about their chemistry and tell me something later. But again, it just showed them as absolutely reliable in any shape or form. You know, you look at recently he did a film called The Prison where he's a hard hitting, you know, prisoner who's sort of the lead of of his his clan and et cetera, et cetera. And looking at the contrast, you think they're completely different actors, even though they look the same because his breadth's so huge. Yeah, not a terrible ch- challenge, that uh, movie. I've seen it twice and there, uh, but uh, he's... Uh... Not that anyone else is bad around him, but uh, he elevates it ever so slightly uh, to make it an entertaining, uh, violent uh, prison film and uh, being the bad guy low-key usually and some outbursts uh, towards the end is certainly earned and he he brings that solid nature without feeling like this is material that is not not worthy of him or anything. He commits to that. Very much so. And, and I mean, you, you mentioned that with uh, him uh, monologuing and uh, not liking the script. It seems like he was uh, uh, reading up on him that he was very firm on filmmaking being script driven. And that led to, at one point, the founding of the Mak Dong Script Festival, which was based on the name of his character in Greenfish. And uh, winners of submitted scripts would be eligible for cash prizes personally funded by the actor. And that would give person's a chance to launch directing or writing careers based on the material in the competition i don't know if it's if it's active anymore but the contest led to the production of movies such as 2424 made in 2002 and private eye from 2009 that starred uh, wang jung min from the whaling so um, i asked this uh, way back yeah, then when we did cherry so but i'll ask it right now is that festival still ongoing you know he was asked after private eye came out in 2009 that not Nothing had come out since for a few years, and he was asked a few years down the line, was it still going? And he said, yes, we're still working towards this, that and the other, but there's been nothing since. So I'm assuming, uh, you know, in the eight, nine years before COVID, it sort of went by the wayside rather than it having carried on and being stopped by a virus or whatever. So who knows? He said he was ready to start it up again. Maybe he will. Um, There's been no word since Private Eye was the last film that that was funded through that it's never out of style to um to encourage talent obviously so uh, i I bet that thing can start up if uh if all all things align you know he was obviously proactive and active but he did when go on a a lengthy break hansa q starting in 1999 because he suffered from a disc problem so he had to decline appearances in movies such as jsa and sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And he was even at one point up for the role of Andy Lau's foe in the Hong Kong film by directors Johnny Toe and Wai Ka Fai. Um, uh, the movie was full-time killer. Maybe for health reasons, he had to back out. And that role went to Japanese actor and singer Takashi Sorimachi. Uh, so that w- would have been a cool crossover. Uh, in the meantime, it seems the industry veered away a bit from the preferred positive commercial image, I suppose, of Hansu Q. The, the golden boy of commercial cinema didn't seem to want to play the media game. Uh, his uh, character was more sensitive, intellect- intellectual, and for some reason that was fairly, in a way, not the appeal anymore. So his comeback in the movie Double Agent, which we watched in 2003, 
which he also co-produced was considered a failure and crappy critics and netizens seemed to jump on a bit of a bandwagon to bash and disgrace Hansu Kudios because it wasn't a commercial hit or anything so so if we, if we go back to that uh, that that image that Hansu Q projected as someone more intellectual and sensitive it it really it it does reek of uh, a promo agency crafting this image. It seems like this is him. This is my public image. These are my opinions. Uh, this is how I want to present myself. And uh, in your opinion, is that more brave and real in a landscape where stars are bred and controlled to be your own man? Very much so. And I, you know, it is very brave. And I would guess he felt he was able to get away with it because of his standing. You know, prior to double agent or et cetera, et cetera. He, you know, his name was so synonymous with acting, with quality acting, that he could dictate what he wanted. I love the fact that, yes, he's script-driven, but the script's got to be right. And if the script's not right, he'll go and say, I, I want to improvise this thing. But it all comes down to story. And when you look at his filmography, whether it's big, small, period dramas or hard-hitting contemporary thrillers, it's all about the story it's all about how his character fits and fits well with with others and i think it's a brave move but i think he always had the clout to be able to make that happen rather than being controlled by a studio or being controlled by material and uh double agent we've covered on the show and i remember being a very solid film and he, he was as always uh, very good in it so it's just one of those uh, things that didn't work commercially necessarily but um People uh, come down uh, just because they can, I suppose. Uh, even back then, uh, in in that part, uh, in that age of the internet. Uh, uh, so, but in the eyes of of the media and viewing audiences, uh, Hansu Q apparently didn't exactly bounce back with movies such as The President's Lost Bang and The Scarlet Letter, uh, at least not commercially again. Uh, maybe critically, um, the latter movies certainly got attention because it unfortunately led to the suicide of actress Lee Unju in the wake of the release of that erotic movie. And uh, again, press and audiences came down hard on on her, the raw sexual content, and uh, coupled with personal troubles and depression, she unfortunately took her took her own life in the wake of this. Um, but 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 if you look at him, I mean, have you always spotted a growth in his uh, in his uh, in his acting, going going from Sherry, going into the Scarlet Letter, has it always seemed like, even if he didn't go into movies that were destined to be box office successes or and weren't, have you always sensed that he's he's getting better? He's not coasting. He's not phoning it in necessarily. Or what's your take? Yeah, about? totally. He's he very much always moves himself forward. You mentioned Sherry. If you go back that far for a film to be that successful, you're top of your gear. Most people would think, well, there's only one way to go from here and it's down. And Hansen Q didn't do that. You know, he always has tried to stretch himself. I mentioned a bloody aria that I had a bit of a, a problem with. It was released internationally, tiny film, but he tried to take a very controversial story and push himself into somewhere he'd never been before. He's always trying to move himself into something else and show that he's still got the power that he had and I, I honestly think he has you know you can yes you can say scarlet letter wasn't a particular success and you know all the the problems in terms of Jew's suicide didn't help it at the time but you look at that you look at the president's last bang which wasn't really that critically acclaimed either 
in hindsight, they've all become cult classics because they are phenomenally well acted. They are interesting stories that that will stay in your mind. So I think he's he's all about the craft. He's all about what's right for whatever character he's playing. And I think that's a nice way to be. I think we can sort of merge two questions here because um, obviously he uh, overcame his physical problems and could uh, work and has has steady work since then. But what's it been like during the last like six or seven years? Has he been uh, this uh, uh, been part of box office uh, successes um, or what's his sort of balance here in terms of the movies he appears in? Is a big, small, indie, personal, difficult work? If you go back to, say, 2014, when he did The Royal Taylor, huge film with a, a massive budget, very period piece about a, a tailor to the king. 2017, Prison, much smaller film. 2019, uh, he did a film called Idol, which was critically acclaimed, big, big budget, but didn't do as well as it should have. And a film called Forbidden Dream which again had critical acclaim. So he he started to claw himself back there. As well as that, he's been very prevalent on TV in the, the latter years. From 2016 to 2020, he was in a hugely successful TV drama called Dr. Romantic, which is, you know, I guess TV fluff, as the name suggests, but, you know, hugely successful, especially among, funnily enough, women. Um, his last films were Idle and Forbidden Dream in 2019. Um, and for this year, it's said that he's in the midst of pre-production of a TV series called When the Day Breaks. There's been no more word than that, I'm assuming, because of the ongoing COVID. Is it, is it, isn't it, is it, isn't it? Um, but it's it's due for release at some point this year. Um, and I'm assuming after that, once things ease again, he'll start moving back to cinema as well. And whether or not he is in a quiet taste for for current audiences, um, I'm, it's thrown about the place where, where, when you read up on him. But that, that has not stopped directors or, or writers such as uh, Park Chan-wook and uh, writer-director Jiang Jin to express their admiration for an actor like Han Suk Kyu and maybe even his specific style of ac- acting, which is said to be very minimal, uh, which I can very much agree. That he's uh, he, he's good with working with uh, very little. He doesn't need to shout or to make his presence felt. Um, but but if anything, throughout his you know successes and failures and the tragedies surrounding uh, movies, he has stood his ground morally, ethically. Um, he's been able to afford to pick his projects, as you hinted at. He going going at them with his preferred style and not giving into the press game. I mean, he, he he's not young anymore, so he doesn't need to. You know, be steered by an agency uh, because he's not a new hot thing anymore. No, not that he ever was, but he's not uh, young and uh, man- uh, he can't be manipulated like that. But he, he has been he has been critical of uh, practices and morals and ethics. I'm sure of um, you know directed to the press, and I'm I'm sure he wasn't silent after the tragic events surrounding the Scarlet Letter. Uh, but but I, I never got the impression from you that he's this. Uh, manic angry force that won't shut up about uh, what it is like so i'm sure he's thoughtful to a degree and balanced you know and and certainly over the years since the scarlet letter and the like and the controversy that surrounded it he's said less and less in that sort of vein of things you know he's he's got back to just being an actor who acts he was you know he was noticeably upset by 
the whole Scarlet Letter thing. Um, and he did talk about it, but he didn't talk about it for that long. And he sort of stopped talking about the press negatively. I think he's just realized that that's not what he does. He He's an actor and, you know, they he knows they see him as reliable regardless of what. So he just gets on and does his job. It's sometimes um, an unwinnable battle, I suppose, um, because media is very cynical, and it still is. Totally, and especially, you know, like I said, he was seen as the equivalent of our Tom Cruise, you know, at the top of his game, biggest actor in the world. And sadly, the one thing the media does is take the biggest things and try to knock them down because that's what they do. Um, and he survived it and he's made it through it. And I, I just, I still think it's very sad that the media has and still does that kind of thing just for the sake of it. He's one of those leading men that I'm sure are popular amidst the fan circles in the West, but um, uh, he's, he's a little bit uh, un- under that surface uh, of uh, Choi Min-sik and Song Kang-ho and uh, Lee Byung-hun and all of that, which, you know, it happens. I mean, there are many actors out there, many actors and actresses. Again, I've... If I've seen four or five movies, that's probably fair. And I've always liked him, and I have s- several notes about what it is I like about the little he does and uh, the presence he has. Um, but uh, l- l- let's lead into the review of uh, Tell Me Something. I have a little bit of history with it. I It was dis- distributed over here where, by the Universal Asian Vision label. So we got like a variety of Hong Kong movies and Korean movies on on our label, including the uncut for Volcano High in the UK, uh, they on, you, only, you only got the uh, the shortened international version. So that so that, that was rather neat. Uh, but it included Tell Me Something. They released that on DVD and even VHS. It was that far back. Uh, but I bailed on my first viewing due to perceived incoherence. Remember, I'm exceedingly stupid, so it's obviously my fault. No, no. A no. year or two ago, I, I picked up a used uh, copy of it uh, to to watch it, and and I did. I, I I watched it in full a second time, and now I watched it of our time for work this time i did arm myself with a plot summary just in case um because again stupid uh, but I, I would like to say in all honesty it's a solid exercise in the grisly serial killer uh, it's made in a fairly calm static manner so that allows for plot beats to develop quite uh, quite nicely it's not riveting or gasping dosing through and through and the final twist wasn't fully satisfactory to me but uh, Korean cinema of 1999 I think delivered a professional slick tailored well for local and international audiences so it's very solid uh, and um, had the final twist been a little bit better I think uh, the grade would have been um, elevated a little bit that, that's where the incoherence came in a little bit in terms of the final imagery which we won't spoil but that's where I sort of like well the plot summary didn't help me here <laughs> in the way it ended but hey uh, we, we can do do that off there in uh, in terms of a uh, short opinion of, of uh, tell me something what did you think in terms of style tell me something has a lot going for it you know it is without question neo-noir whatever that is I mentioned in our last podcast that Born to Kill with, again, Shimuna had sort of sparked interest in the neo-noir look. And if it hadn't been for Born to Kill, I doubt Tell Me Something would have turned out the way it did. So stylistically, I think it's incredibly well done. It's got that feeling that you get from watching things like Nowhere to Hide, uh, etc., etc., the problem for me is, well, you said you bailed on it the first time because it seemed to be incoherent. Tell me something isn't a complicated story, but 
when you're watching the film, it feels like it is. And re-watching it, I thought a lot about why that is. And all I can come up with is the fact that we've got five screenwriters here, each of whom has, I guess, their own agenda. They're trying to keep things mysterious. So you're trying to, so you have to figure out who the killer is. But they each put parts in that make certain narrative leaps jumping through hoops. You've got to actually really work to keep your head where it should be. On the Tartanasia Extreme release of this, there is an interview in the extras with the director. And he actually states himself, you'll probably be able to figure out who who the killer is but it may take you a few watches to understand it and when it, and he smiled and for a director to say you may have to watch my film three or four times before you actually understand where we're coming from to me sort of says he's just taken what he's got or what he's been given and saying you, you'll get it eventually honestly honestly it it felt it felt unconvincing to me that he he didn't have the confidence to say this is a really solid thing that'll really show itself up. You've got to work to figure this story out, and as you said, the the conclusion is unsatisfying in certain respects. Uh, and you know there is a minor minor spoiler through the story, regardless of who we think the killer is or who we don't. Uh, Hansa Q's character hangs around with. Shimunai's character a lot and there's an obvious romantic element seemingly that that's supposed to be given and at one point she she tells him she's going to be moving back to Paris and invites him to come with her at that point you know I, all that came to me was the chemistry between these two characters isn't there the romance isn't there it was a very like um uh, like, like I, I, I didn't spot that in the early interactions that that was even a, a, a focus that that they built up that chemistry as characters and that care between each other. Um, so, so that, so that was a, yeah, yeah, exactly that. That was a surprising like leap. Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, nah, all right. Exactly. You know, it, it wasn't warranted, and in order to to believe that she could say that to him and he would take her seriously. Uh, again, you, you're having to jump through hoops to to let things go. The fact the chemistry wasn't really there, but you just pretend it was. And there's there's way too much of that in terms of the chemistry, in terms of that rom- supposed romance, and in terms of the leaps you've got to make in terms of other characters and in terms of figuring out who who the bad guy is. There's at one point and. Uh, hopefully this isn't another spoiler there's at one point a a human heart found in someone's fridge and the police immediately go chasing after this person because they think they find the killer and then suddenly that character isn't in it anymore and two minutes later the policemen are having a conversation on a inside a van saying if only we could figure out who the killer is and there are constant things like that that just make you think you haven't finished what you, what you're doing. What are you doing? And later on, we find out why they're doing these things. And they do kind of make sense. But it's only in hindsight. It's only after you've spent 
25 minutes scratching your head going but why aren't you wh- why aren't you going after him now where where's it it's a little stitched uh, together like uh, the body parts are in the movie and split up and stitched together i suppose very, uh, very much so and the only thing i can think of is you know too many cooks spoil the broth i think they've got six, five or six screenplay writers including the director and they've cobbled all their individual ideas together and it just comes across as deeply deeply convoluted very stylish looking it's a really is a showcase uh, technically especially especially with special effects i mean that uh, opening uh, in the operation theater which is a, a makeshift one but an operation theater operating theater nonetheless with, with the slicing and uh, dicing of the prosthetics of the arm being severed and the blood bucket under the table and plenty of gores it's uh, it, it has silence of the lambs and seven looming over it and it's raining all the time but it technically it uh, showcased that it means business so it's quite a gore, gory movie and no way it's going to be en- below 18 anytime soon in the uk many 18 movies back in the day go low to 15 this has no chance doing that it's pretty pretty damn gross at points and i do love the fact that in those early scenes when we see this person who we don't know being you know having his limbs cut off it, it looks real. I mean, the body parts actually look like, you know, real body parts. It's it's very, very easy to sit right in front of the TV to see if you can spot that it's a prosthetic. And it's it's really hard to tell. It's incredibly stylishly done. I mean, even uh, in the later scenes where, uh, with the findings, you know, the body parts, uh, the torsos, the, those prosthetics that they've created, they're, they're believable looking finds in the car, for instance, in the rain, these... Uh, bodies uh, and uh, it's not green for the sake of it either it's just effective and effectively gross so you know like, like the elevator scene where a bag of further parts have been placed and people are slipping all over the floor and are panicking which is kind of darkly comedic but obviously uh, completely gross well, totally totally I, I will also say that there is a a dream sequence a short dream sequence um where hansa q finds himself in that elevator and uh there's blood on the ceiling he thinks and as he reaches up the ceiling breaks and torrents of blood come down on him and in the extras on the the tartanesia extreme thing they actually showed him after he'd he'd done that scene um and they were they were bringing bottles of water washing his eyes out you know that it goes back it it goes back to you know this is a guy who will do whatever he needs for his character because you know there wasn't an orifice that wasn't full of fake blood so you got to give them points um so those things really work stylishly i just wish there was more cohesiveness to the story overall yeah i kind of was i, I wanted more of that uh gasp inducing feeling as the development went on and I, I it sort of became more yeah yeah this is acceptable and fine but i'm not um i'm not being uh there's not a wow factor here but uh Hansu Q is a kind of exemplary anyway. It's a good he's a good present charismatic actor even through you know we get him even through a mild introduction like the the um, the board hearing about the money he got for the hospital bill that they present that we touched upon in the plot synopsis and it doesn't need to be resolved uh, that question which I very much like that we we never find out yeah. if uh, he actually um uh, if he did, uh, if he had malicious intent uh, or just did what he had to do for his mother, but it's a sufficient sufficient setup. We're thrown into the middle of internal suspicions, but there's a new case and he's not suspended. He's allowed to uh, keep an eye on this case because they, they trust his instincts and 
and I didn't require a resolution for the money, if you will. That's not an unresolved script issue. I think that's very much something all the script writers came together and saw and and said like audiences can make up their own minds we we can't spend time on this because there are murders and yeah uh, exactly exactly and uh, obviously there's hints of resentment and suspicions by colleagues that's all tropey but i i i, I like how hansu q is very low-key he's not the tropey unshaven cop with a rocky marriage and pizza cartons all over his apartment <laughs> you know yeah he, he's he's kind of in a daze but he is professional uh he's possibly guilty but um gears are grinding in him as as, uh, as a detective and he and he's expressive in a very low-key fashion that i appreciate and he expresses some regret over what he's possibly done but it's very calm and low-key and oddly mm. charismatic I don't know what it is uh, about him. He's not this, uh, you know, chiseled supermodel or anything, but he's oddly charismatic and um, and believable as uh, as a detective and believable in any role he um, takes. Uh, and, and as a stylish piece, it's not it's it's professional and slick rather than an audiovisual knock knockout. And what I, what I mean by that, there, there, his uh, Chang Hun uh, Chang Yun he's uh, he's not punching us with audiovisual trickery. He's it's very calm and static uh, film, um, and uh, that is good for the coherency that is here. It's not all throughout, but the coherency that is here. But I, I think then when we we get Shimona and we get their interaction, her sort of icy quiet side pays off in some respects in terms of uh, what's going on under the surface and in other respects as you said that interaction between them is uh, someone meant for it to be a little bit more than it is Uh, that can hurt rewatchability to be honest and then we come back to what the director said that uh, well come back to it and uh, there may be more I don't think I can find more here to be honest exactly you know and I mean if if we go back to you know, we were talking about Christmas in August earlier. A, a completely different film, obviously. It's not horror. It's a, it's a, you know, tragedy romance. But when you look at the chemistry that those two actors have together, it's palpable. You know, led by director Her Jin Ho. So the fact that the, the chemistry isn't here and tell me something isn't their fault. It's the fault of the script. It's the fault of the direction. Um, and I think that's a real shame because. I've seen them with real chemistry and I know they can do it. It's just a pity it's not done. It's a little bit too low energy as a, as a stylistically and then in their interaction. Of, and I think that that will turn off viewers. And her demeanor is obviously not about hogging the screen as she's very solid in the film, but uh, her icy side prevents drama to come through in the way they intend uh, as they deepen her her psychological uh, character and all of that but it um, they, they, they run into a wall a little bit here for and, and never really get to that gasp inducing sort of aura to this type of movie that you want for instance they, they interrogate uh, one of the uh, former boyfriends uh, which I truly disliked he it's such an obviously devious cunning above it above it all character that he even finds the the cameras that are uh, filming the interrogation and look straight at Hansu Q that is watching from the other side and I, I didn't like those touches at all because one it never paid off that that character sort of faded and uh, 
it it really felt almost amateurish tele amateurish uh, uh, telegraphing that w- wasn't needed at all. I think the movie was better than to f- include those beats of uh, one of the exes. Um, totally, and 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 if you take that same thing, you know the the look that they specifically made him have on his face pushed everything way too far. Again, it's pushing you in a direction it it's trying to make you think you want to go, which immediately makes me go, I I, I don't think I want to go there. I think you're lying to me. Mm-hmm. Um which which pulls you out of your immersion. But but but, but oddly enough, whenever whenever Hansa Q does something here, I, I being being the cop, you know, arri- arriving at an apartment and finding hidden items and hidden camera and uh, doing his thing, you know, as a cop, all that is pretty damn good. I, I like seeing him work uh, his environments, uh, and and th- th- there's some good um, challenging editing. There's an attack sequence on Chimuna's character where she she notices she notices something. The medical student friend rings the bell, and then the cops arrive. They're like they, they compress time, and I I, I like those challenging uh, editing beats. Uh, it seems like he's too trusting of that uh, of Chimona's character. He he acts as her bodyguard essentially. He informs her there is a gun in the drawer, so she can protect herself. He leaves his gun. At that point, I was curious. I mean, we're we're only an hour in uh, essentially. Like if it's a conscious tactic as a policeman, or if he's weak for her, but it never th- that that question that gets g- gets answered in a weak way, uh, eventually without without spoiling it. So it, that didn't work for me. And again, it's a slow building mystery. I'm fine with that. It has a pace I don't mind because I can keep up with it. And after, but after the graphic flurry in the beginning, viewers might feel it's too slow. And uh, there, there's not too much happening, and I can sort of agree because uh, the, the slowness is there to build dread as well, you know. And, and some of it works. Uh, Hansu Q finds and views the videotape, uh, videotape murder, and there's a chase sequence in an alley with uh, a couple of good stunts, and uh, all of that when you're in the middle of that, I suppose, works. But it's when you get to conclusion time and when things are put in a bow that, that you realize that. There were weaker elements leading up to this, uh, even though you appreciate that the movie isn't slam, bang, and anxious to be slam, bang, raining, shaky camera, blood everywhere for two hours. So there is a design choice here to be quiet, and at least with a plot summary next to you, it's easy to follow up until a certain point, and... uh, They do manage to get some gasps in there of a tale of abuse that uh, is a flashback. Uh, which they do in sort of full view and in fragments as well. Again, challenging editing beats. I appreciated that. But there, there, some of that made my skin crawl, to be honest. The, the tale of abuse. Not, it's not about being gory, necessarily. But in terms of that finding its true place and making it an, an effective, scary, gasp-inducing work, that ball they do kind of drop uh, when all is said and done. So, um, in, in terms of that... you. You know, if you look at the history of Korean cinema, that whole idea of parental abuse and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is so, so prevalent. I can understand why they felt the need to put it in. They just don't handle it decently enough. It's just, it's too, too overt to, here you go. Whereas other filmmakers would have laced it differently. So I think, I think that's, essentially down to 
again, just almost trying too hard to to fit something in that they feel needs to be fitted in when, yeah, okay, if it was handled differently, it could fit, but it's it's clunky. You, you wonder if this even needed a twist, but I'm going to be very vague here, but, uh, leading up to uh, the sort of ending here. There are some gnarly murders of supporting characters, by the way. Um, using a forklift, I appreciated that. That was nicely gory. <laughs> true, true. Uh, but but uh, again, the, the the confrontation about 20 minutes uh, uh, before the movie, so we know this movie to go. It seems to be based on a good conclusion of uh, the murderer's identity, based on past scars and resentment, and the psychological reasons for swatching body parts around can be sort of mulled over, and you think, yeah, that checks out well enough. It's not terrific. Checks out well enough. Fairly sophisticated puzzle, and I suppose um, I, I suppose this is fine. I, I don't think it's great, but I suppose it's fine. Uh, and for a while, as it leads into the twist of it all, you know, okay, fine. They're looking at this, and they're leading up to a twist, and the plot summary isn't helping anymore, and uh, when we get the visual sort of payoff and the narrative payoff of what is really going on, it, it didn't take me back. It uh, it didn't start to like oh oh and oh as a matter oh, as a matter of fact oh yeah oh my god you're no. you're kidding me and and I thought no. like maybe they should have just stuck with the conclusion that we see twenty minutes before the movie and you would have had a little bit more acceptance I think I I didn't think it was uh, terribly riveting but it seemed to add up. Which is all I'm going to say. Yeah, unsatisfying. And it felt to me like a coda that was added later by whoever. There was a genuine, what I felt was a conclusion to this film that was satisfying enough. And it it shouldn't have been taken any further. And that's all I'll say about it, really. So I think we'll just conclude it there. It's it's well worth a watch um, to see what Korean cinema did um, in these uh, early days, and they did it very well, very professionally. I mean, it's not a badly made film at all, and uh, for um, for the gore hounds, there's uh, there's plenty of stuff to to get from this, but don't expect uh, a refined serial killer film. And uh, I suppose uh, uh, South Korea would be uh, would get very much better. At this, I mean, it's it's not a comparable piece, I suppose. But you know, flash forward to the chaser and the likes, and uh, yeah, you 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 get this mix of gnarly uh, graphic, but also sharp narrative instincts uh, in there, and um, and uh, pretty much uh, a fulfill a fulfilling film in terms of the chaser. But uh, I I know it's a vague comparison. I just can't think of any other serial killer films at this point. So what I would say that there are just a couple of things. If we look at the female friend of Shimunai's character, let's let's just say it straight here now. It's played by an actress called Yoon Jung Ah, who is, as I've described her, a, a, the scream queen of Korean cinema. You know, she was the evil stepmother in A Tale of Two Sisters. She's and she's been in the mimic. Um, she is a astonishing actress in horror and all other films, but. You know, she is a scream queen. Horror was her forte and she's phenomenal at it. And I was actually, she is really, really young looking in this. But I was actually, by the end of the rewatch, kind of upset that they don't give her more leeway. She's just, she's almost a passing character. Her character has, has a place, certainly an important place. But as an acted 
character. She's not given very much to do at all. And, and I was kind of a little bit disappointed by that. And that's, that's, a, that's a very personal thing. But No, no I agree. I mean, they, they, they attempt to build a backstory for her as well and their friendship, but um, it never really came to that sort of fire and brimstone conclusion where you just go, whoa, that, that's the connective tissue. It's, it, it wasn't like that. Very much so. And the very final thing I want to say before I finally shut up, the one, one of the big things, apart from being stylistically and visually, you know, quite adept, the soundtrack to Tell Me Something is kind of incredible at times. We've got Nick Cave's Red Right Hand. We've got songs by Enya um, that are all very atmospheric, combined with a load of gothic visuals. They work really, really well. And as far as I'm aware, they just used those tracks because they liked them. This was at the time sort of before performing rights and, and, and granted performing rights were law in Korean cinema. So directors w were just, you know, thinking, well, I like that. We'll use that. So as far as I know, nobody got paid anything for this incredible soundtrack of their songs being used. But you know, in terms of audio, it really steps up the stylish aspect because the songs work incredibly well with the very gory visuals. There, there, there's an example of that, and I might cut this out because it's not really necessary for our discussion. But there's an example of that of um, in Kim Ki Duk's Bad Guy. Uh, towards the end of the film, there's um, a, a silent scene. <laughs> Welcome to Kim Ki Duk's movie. No one's talking. Uh, but uh, indeed, there, indeed. There, there's there's a, a song being sung by a Swedish artist, uh, Karola Hedqvist. She's Christian, so she performs Christian hymns, and it's very wholesome. I don't know if that is a Christian hymn necessarily. Uh, that popped up in Swedish media. That that appears in such a controversial film like Bad Guy. Uh, but but I can just imagine that Kim Ki Duk at that point just just so sort of liked the sound of it. He didn't care what the content was, if, if it was Christian content or a Christian hymn or not. He just liked the singing and the, the melody for uh, some of the final stretches of uh, of Bad Guy. Some of its more mellow stretches and not uh, some of its heinous stretches. And 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 I believe and I believe he didn't uh, go to like Universal Music and ask for permission. Universal Music Sweden. I would imagine he just used it and thought, yeah, that's great. That works really well. And I, they got away with it for quite a while because nobody outside Korea was seeing their films that much. So, you know, things have, things have changed. But, you know, it's interesting. It's just an interesting thing to look back on the fact that they could just, they felt they could just willy-nilly take stuff and use it and not actually check with the the artist if it was okay or if it was fitting with their thought of their music you know and 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 you know they would be within their rights to sort of say no your totally. uh, your movie is going on the back burner until you paid us like find another soundtrack to use even if it's been out for a few years but maybe just rights holders felt like well let's balance costs uh, versus each other did that movie uh take uh, uh take uh, profits away from us to uh, x amount of dollars no i didn't really well screw it then it's not worth it yeah very possibly so um okay okay we'll um we'll conclude this uh, right now as for availability we uh talked of tell me something going on export and that meant plenty of dvd re releases including scandinavian ones and uk ones 
Uh, not all were, um, uh, th th there was a US DVD as well by Kino. Uh, not all were anamorphic widescreen, but the Tartan release in the UK was. Plus it has some minor extras and can be bought for five, six pounds uh, still. Uh, the Swedish release had a little bit, uh, some behind the scenes montage. I didn't watch it. Maybe they actually have that montage of Hansa Q being bathed in blood. So I'll, I'll, I'll have to recheck that DVD because when I saw it was a documentary piece, I just um, skipped it. But, uh, but yeah. Well, on the on the Cartonesia Extreme version, it's the the extras are set into behind the scenes and just trailer and soundtrack things. So the behind the scenes has sort of. You know, behind the scenes, showing the prosthetics and stuff, the Hansa Q thing, and then there's the the interview with the director where where he says my film doesn't make any sense unless you watch it twelve times. So it it's all yeah, it's all in one big sort of forty minute extra. Okay, it was only like five minutes on the Swedish DVD, so yeah. Okay, they should be commended for also seeing the value of documenting the filmmaking process and putting that type of extras on uh, DVDs. I do prefer a more coherent or a produced documentary type of thing nowadays. Yeah. I don't get too much out of watching B-roll footage, but it, it certainly was cool in the beginning when you wanted that insight into what it was like shooting Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. I mean, shit, that 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 scene where uh, Song Kang Ho and um, what's the damn actor's name? That's mute. Uh, Shin Hakyun, right? Yeah, they're uh, doing the water scene at the end of uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. They, I'm sure, they have w um, wetsuits on. It was fucking cold doing that. They were <laughs> shivering like little, yeah, little, totally. And and there's Park Chan Wook sitting by the monitor smoking. I'm warm. You're not. Ah, <laughs> uh, there, there you go. Korean cinema is very best. Yeah, so, uh, so, so they got those like hot, uh, uh, hot, uh, soft rubbery water bottles as soon as they came out of the water and were shivering. And but mind you, Shin Ha Kyun, he can't, he can't talk, so he can't uh, express uh, necessarily <laughs> that it's difficult for him. Right? He just needs to get on with it. This is acting, and they look that looked miserable that day. Looked cold as fuck. Totally. But it made for a good scene uh, at the end of Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Made for a great film. It's not shot in a warm pool or anything. Nope, outside, cold. <laughs> um, so, yep, we're done for this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. For all your podcast on Fire Network needs, including the back catalogue of what's Korean cinema, the podcast, uh, check out the site. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and wherever you find podcasts and social media links will be available on the site. They're all, they always are, but specific links connected to this episode will be available in the show post. Uh, link to link to Enya, I suppose. Maybe I'll play Enya in the show uh, in the show music. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Nice idea. Nice idea. A little atmos atmospheric, little choral piece as Enya uh, often did. Uh, but uh, that's uh, the plugin done from my site. So why don't you plug uh, your website before we go? Thanks very much for listening, guys. You know, if you're bored or want to look into, you know, other Korean stuff that you haven't seen, pop over to hangelsideloid.com and uh, have a little browse around. Um, hopefully see you there. Yeah, he did uh, review um, review uh, the, the, the Oscar winner after all, Minari. So uh, that's up on the site. So. It is, you know. You you even talked to the, the Academy Award winning uh, lady at one point. I did, right? I did, and and it's it's even available on DVD. If you buy a, a film called Boomerang Family from Third Window, shameless plug. I don't know if they at one point we were talk we were talking about a film 
where she uh, disrobed, shall we say, and uh, she, without hesitation, offered to, you, you know, do you want me to take my clothes off now? I'll do it. I have no shame. So I, I don't know. I don't know if they cut that bit out. I imagine I'm, I'm old. I have it. nothing to lose. Yeah, so I don't mind getting naked. Um, so, you know, that in itself is worth a watch because she's a, a feisty lady. Let's put it that way. It's a wonderful, wonderful. She was fun uh, during the Oscars. She said that she was there to sort of hoping to meet Brad Pitt. So, like, well, you know, at the end of the day, I would I would hope that Brad Pitt would be happy to meet her as well. You know, I mean, come on, this this she's an icon. Very cool. Well, uh, we'll um, we'll uh, link to your website, and uh, in the meantime, uh, we are going to sign off. So, thank you everybody for listening to the What's Korean Cinema podcast on Tell Me Something. That's uh, in Korean called Tell Me Something. So there we are. I've been Kenny, and with me was Paul Queen of Angle Celluloid. Thanks for listening, guys. See you soon.